a great job. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. <clears throat> well, welcome home, family. We're so glad that you guys are with us. We're so glad that we are um, together this fine Sunday morning. Day. We bring so much to church when we come to church. Our week, the month, the year. Hopefully 2019 hasn't been that rough on you so far. But we bring all that with us when we come to church. And it's just a great time to look beyond that and look to our Savior and our God. So let's do that this morning. We're starting... Right now, the first week in our series going through the Gospel of John, where we're going to take a long trek through what uh, the Gospel says, who Jesus is in his life and ministry, and so we're looking forward to that. You can join us with that. Uh, in the back, we have little um, journal Bibles with just the Gospel of John that you can take notes in. Uh, you can take them to your small group as well, and so we're still having those on sale. Um, I was informed this morning that you can find them cheaper elsewhere. And so if you want to do that route, we're not offended, you can do that. But we have some uh, for $5 there. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we just ask as we open up your word that you speak to us. That we can know you more. Know you deeper. Respond to who we see. Lord, we ask this time as we seek to follow you that you bring to our minds what we need to see, that you teach us what we need to be taught, and that you encourage us and move us and push us where we need to be pushed. Lord, we love you and seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in a still another village where he worked until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is a central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. That's a poem from 1926, reflecting on who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? This question is not new. In fact, ever since Jesus came on the scene, people have been asking that question, who is this man? The religious leaders of his time tried to grapple with who is this person who teaches as if he was God. The people who came out to him to be healed, to be fed by him, to be ministered by him, to listen to his teachings, were looking for who he is and they thought they knew his disciples, 
people who gave up everything to follow him, seemed at times to forget who he was. But then at other times were very clear on who he was. And Jesus himself even asked the question, who do people say I am? Who is Jesus? And that question remains today. Who is Jesus? And sadly, there's a lot of confusion reigning within that question today. People say all sorts of things about Jesus. They say he's a sage, a prophet, a revolutionary, a cynic, and for some, simply a failed religious leader. Who is Jesus? But without fail, come Easter or Christmas, every major magazine or TV network will probably be addressing that question once again. Just who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? And polls continue to show that the majority of Americans at least seem to like Jesus, even if they don't understand him. And so who is Jesus? I found this quote by a church historian that I just thought was so great that said this, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke words of life such as were never spoken before nor since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of the orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he was set he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, oration, discussion, works of art, learned volumes, and sweet songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Born in a manger and crucified as a criminal, he now controls the destinies of the civilized world and rules a spiritual empire which embraces one-third of the inhabitants of the globe. That's who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? That came from a a church historian named Philip Schaft. Probably saying that wrong. Who is Jesus? The Gospel of John tells us who Jesus is. And that's why we're starting this journey as we go through the Gospel of John, learning who Jesus is, because it seems like it's a pretty important question that we need to go come to terms with. And so the Gospel of John was written to believers probably around AD 80. It's the oldest gospel means the latest from the time of Jesus' death written to believers. And it's written by the Apostle John, even though there's no statement in there that says this is the Apostle John writing this. Most people conservatively believe it's truly the Gospel of John, the, the Apostle. He doesn't really refer to himself in the first kind of the third person and say, hey, I wrote this, but we believe that to be true. And he was writing with a purpose to tell us who Jesus is. And so if it was written in AD 80, let's just put this in perspective. This was about 50 years after Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. And so John, who walked with Jesus for life, was kind of hitting his, at the end of his life. He was probably approaching, if not beyond, 70 years old. An old man reflecting upon who Jesus is and what he has done in this world. And he wants to let people know who he is. But you don't have to take my word for it because we see actually in the book itself that John gives a purpose statement. In John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which were not written in this book, but these were, are written so that you may believe Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So we see John gives his purpose for writing this gospel, that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by knowing him and believing in him, we can have life in his name. He wants us to know the truth of who Jesus is. And that statement, that truth of who Jesus is, is written on every page in the Gospel of John. And so let's turn to John and see who Jesus is. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to start in John chapter 1. That's a good place to start. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles, the, the scripture will be on the screen. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John the Wit. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Far from his fullness we have all received, for from his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. There we go. That's who Jesus is. These first 18 verses, which are usually called the prologue of the, the Gospel of John, carry so much information that I said, hey, instead of the nine or so months I had planned to go through John, let's spend you know, two years because I want to spend a couple of months right here. Not really, but we could. Because every verse is just packed with information, packed with the Gospel of how Jesus saves us. And how do you summarize these 18 verses? And I did my best, and it would be just this. The Son came to make us sons. That's the gospel. Is that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Almighty God himself, came down in human form as Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God, for the express purpose of giving us what we were not, and that is sonship daughtership within God, that the Son came to make us sons. And in the process, we are saved. In the process, we have new life. In the process, our future is secured. In the process, we get all the benefits of having God as a father. The Son came to make us sons. That is the gospel of John. He makes it very clear. And I love the gospel of John because where he starts that first verse, in the beginning. I love this because I imagine John, he's sitting around with his friends, right? He's about to put pen to paper. Maybe he was going to dictate it to his, his friend. He was going to write it down. And he goes, man, how do I start to tell the story about Jesus? And some wise out says, well, you start at the beginning. And he's like, ah, I'll do just 
that. Because all the gospel writers started at the beginning. Matthew started at the beginning at the birth of Jesus. Uh, Luke started at the beginning when he goes back to the birth of John the Baptist. Mark starts at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so John says, you know where I'm going to start? At the true beginning. In the beginning. The first beginning. Because he wants to make it very clear, in the beginning was Jesus. Because when we hear these words in the beginning, it should tickle our ears and our minds. What does it remind us of? Genesis 1.1. When Moses, writing the story of how God created the heavens and the earth, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John uses that language, grabs it, steals it, and says, in the beginning, Jesus. In the beginning was the word, as we see, is Jesus. And he wants to start off his gospel with a correct understanding that make no mistake about it, Jesus is God. And so he says, in the beginning was the word, and you can talk so much about what that word, word means, because it carries so much concept with it. The Greeks would hear this word, logos, and think of, of uh, intellectual pursuit or logic or reasoning. And so maybe John was trying to tell his followers that Jesus is the logic of God, the reason of God, wisdom of God personified. Or maybe he really was just following the pursuit of the Jewish people at the time when they understood that the word of God could not be separated from God and that the word of God it, that has been personified throughout the whole Bible that when you go back through the Old Testament again and again, we see the word of God performing actions that only God can do. Like Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And so we see that John's pulling from this, this idea that God makes the world through his word and says now the world's making it because he says, all things were made through him, and not anything that was made was not made through him. And then we see how he also is pulling salvation into the word of God. In Psalm 107.20, says, that says, He sent out his word and healed them, and he delivered them from destruction, which again, John pulls on that and talks about how this word is the light and life. That Jesus, the word of God, brings the uh, life to the spiritually dead, and he brings light to the spiritually darkened. And so we see that John is reflecting in a very um, Old Testament fashion that the Word was involved in both creation and salvation. And that Jesus is that Word. The Word of God is the Son of God. The Word of God is Jesus Christ. And John goes further and he wants to make that really clear where he uses a great language. The Word of God was with God and the Word of God was God. We see this connection there, this concept that frames John's whole gospel, that Jesus is God. That the Word of God was with God. It was God's eternal fellow. They were best buddies from even before the beginning, together. But he was also was God, God's own self. Which if, right there, if your mind goes, wait, how does that work? How does it compute? How do we understand that? Now you've just bumped up into the fact that John wants to introduce really early that we believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, God, and three persons. And if you're like, well, I can't understand that, well, you're in good company because a lot of, I love, all of us kind of hit that level where like, we just have to trust what the Bible says. We know the truth that the Word was with God and the Word was God. 
And then John makes this move, and he, he also says, well, now I'm going to talk about this person sent from, from God who is named John. And this is not the, the apostle talking about himself. He is actually referring to John the Baptist. And it says, John the Baptist was sent by God with a mission. And what was that mission? To point to the Son who was to come. He was to prepare the way for the Son to come and announce his salvation. I love asking the question, who it was the last Old Testament prophet? Well, the question, the answer is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is, is that figure that kind of straddles the, 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 the Old Testament and New Testament. He provides the way and announces the coming that things were about to change. Things were going to meet, come to the head. Things were going to start being fulfilled. That John the Baptist was going to prepare the way and he's going to point to Christ. And why did he point to Christ? Because he knew that while he was pointing to the light, he was not the light. As we see in verse 9, it says the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so we see this concept again that's pulling back from verses 4 and 5, this idea that the word Jesus Christ was the light and he was the life. That he's meeting the two biggest things we who are sinners need. Because when you think about where we stand in sin, where do we stand? Well, we stand in darkness. For the world wants nothing to do with God who is light and pure and, and of, of good. The world has turned its back on that. And it's in darkness. And it wants only to dwell in darkness. And it can't even recognize that light. But that darkness is not just blindness and not being able to see. That darkness actually separates us from God and results in death. So that we're no longer connected as we have been designed to be with the life giver of the universe. That the one who spoke us into being, now we are separated and severed from him. And the only result of that is death. And so what do we need? We need light to reveal the truth of who God is. And we need life so that we can take a breath again and live again as we were designed to do. I love this imagery because I don't think it could get more vivid. A light into darkness. Have you guys ever been in a place where you can't see anything? Whether it was in a completely blackened out room or maybe a cave, you can't see your own hand in front of your face. That's the image we get of this world. It's dark. We were stumbling around. We can't make sense of everything. But then all of the sudden, a light glares, and it's blinding, and it beckons us, it draws us in, and it says, I can save you from this. That's the image John wants to paint, this light and life that Jesus brings that to us, providing light and salvation. Oh, but what the irony, the world does not know him. His own people, who he came to, do not receive him. And I love this because it's so ironic that the God who created all, the God who knit the whole, every human being in, in the world 
knit them together in their mother's womb, who knows the hairs on top of their head, the God who breathed galaxies into place, the God who fashioned everything and knows it intimately, comes down into his creation, and the creation looks at him, us. We look at him and go, who are you? So ironic and sad. But then even further, his chosen people, the people who have received the oracles from God from the time of, from the get-go, who should know, have been waiting for a Savior, who have been reading their scriptures and know he's coming, who have put all their hope in the Savior coming, they look at Jesus and say, who are you? And we can condemn them and we can make, us. Ah, if I was there, I would have known him, but I don't think so. For we, the world who was supposed to receive him did not receive him. His own people could not recognize him. And the irony of there, that he lived a rejected life. And right here in this a few verses, we just have this, the flyover, 3,000 kind of foot version of the whole gospel that we'll see. The people who should know Jesus don't know him, but those who really shouldn't know him are drawn to him and see him for who he is, the Savior of the world. And he comes on a mission, a mission that I would argue he accomplishes because the Son came to make us sons. And we see that mission in verses 12 and 13. This idea that the world, the people who should have received him did not receive him, but, because I love that word but, when you see that word but in the Gospels, it's such a beautiful thing, but those who do receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not of the flesh and blood, not blood, children not born of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. I love that, but that he came on this mission. And what was that mission? To save his own. He gave people the ability and draw, draw, draws people into a relationship with God by bringing them back to the Father, bringing us into a new relationship with God as sons and daughters. The Son came to make us sons, and he does it. John wants you to make it very clear that this is Jesus doing it. This is not us doing it. And so John makes it very clear by pointing to everything that someone's going to point to in and of themselves for salvation. And he says, this is not a child born of, of blood, not being, this is not a child of natural descent. You are not saved because you were born into the right family. You are not saved because you were born a Jewish person. He's saying, no, salvation is, is not dependent upon your ethnic background. That's, you can't point to that and claim salvation. And he goes a step further and he says, nor is it, is it based on the will of the flesh, no matter how sincere you are, you cannot save yourself. No matter how sincere you truly believe about how well you believe, you cannot save yourself. Only Jesus, the correct object of our faith, can save us. And he makes it even more clear. He says, nor by the will of man. Your efforts will not save you, John says. No matter how much will and effort you put into your salvation, that's not what saves you. Because he finishes up really clear, but God. That is how we're saved. Period. Through Jesus Christ, we are saved because God saves us. The Son 
came to make us sons. God chooses sinners, and those sinners choose God in response to him. The Son came to make us sons. Let me just make it very clear where I stand on things, because we can ask the question, did Jesus save, or did he just try to save? Jesus is not a failed religious leader. He did not come to complete his mission and then take a step back. That when Jesus came to fulfill something, he fulfilled it. When Jesus came to save someone, he came to save them and save them. When Jesus came for a mission on by God, he fulfilled it. And so I can claim it very, very strongly that Jesus accomplished his mission. No ifs, ends, and buts. Jesus saves. Jesus takes salvation from our hands when we're fumbling with it, thinking we can do it, and messing it up and says, no, let me, for I'm the only one that can save you. And he pulls us back into a relationship with the Father, and we're saved because the Son came to make us sons. And how did he do it? Starting in verse 14, we see how he did it. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. How did he do it? By the greatest miracle of all time that we have ever heard of, that we could ever know of, the Word, God himself, put on flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation, Jesus coming down, being born of the Virgin Mary, as the prophecy had foretold, living a life just like ours, but sinless. Living for a life that we could not live, because we always mess up. Living a life and standing in our place, taking our due punishment upon himself, we see the salvation of Christ. How did Jesus save us? By being one of us and making us what he was. I love this thought. The early church fathers always put it, uh, put it kind of something like this. The son became one of us. Um, let me find it first. The son of God be- became what he, he was not in order that we might become what we were not. This is the logic of Philippians 2. The son who was in equality with God but did not consider that something to be grasped. Rather, what did he do? He emptied himself, becoming the form of a servant. That the son became what he was not, human. Why? So that he could take us, human, and make us what he was, a son of God. The son came to make us sons. C.S. Lewis says it a little differently. He says, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And then I just sum it up. The Son came to make us sons. That was his mission, and he accomplishes it in his salvation. And the Word became flesh. We see this, and he dwelt among us. I love how the message paraphrase puts it. He moved into the neighborhood because it really is emphasizing that Jesus was one of us. Jesus walked through life. He grew up. Jesus went through puberty, and yet he was without sin. Think about that one for a second. Jesus was human. The humanity of Jesus cannot be denied. He dwelt with us. He lived with us. He grew. He learned. He submitted to his mother and father without sin again. Think of that in mind. I might have to bring that up to my, my kids when they get old enough. <laughs> this was Jesus as one of us. 
Why? So that he could represent us perfectly and fully. That when he stood before God in judgment on that cross, he was the true second Adam. What Adam was meant to be from the beginning, and he could stand in our stead and represent us so that we could have salvation in his name. Son came to make us son. But I also love this word, that the word dwelt among us because it, it harkens back once again to the Old Testament. John was a good Jew. He knew the Bible, and he knew that through, if you remember in Israel, how did Israel know that God was with them? Well, they built a tabernacle when they were wandering in the desert, right? And this transferred over to the temple, and God's glory, his kind of glory descended upon this temple, this tabernacle, and he dwelled among his people, and they sacrificed to him, and they knew that he was with them. And so John uses that same language. It says, when the word became flesh and he dwelt among us, that dwelt is actually pinched his tent. He tabernacled among us. And so John pointed back to the Old Testament and says, we have Jesus, God dwelling with us, but now here's Jesus, and he is the true temple. He is the true tabernacle. This is where the glory of God dwells in Christ Jesus. And so we know God is with us. He is a true sacrifice, as we'll see, that satisfies all sacrifices. He is a true high priest that can sympathize with us and offers one sacrifice only once himself for us. And so John, pointing back in the Old Testament, says, this Jesus, the Word, fulfills all of this. All of that is found in fulfillment in Jesus, the Word dwelling among us. The Son came to make us sons. And then it's just like John wants to wrap it, bullet, kind of keep on going through it in those next verses, 15 through 18. He says, and also remember, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament as he's a true tabernacle. We see that he is the expression of the true glory of God the Father. We see that he is actually greater than John the Baptist, meaning he's greater than all the prophets. Why? Because he was before all the prophets, and he, all the prophets testify to him. And so we see that he is the greatest that the prophets testify, and then he keeps on going, and he says, and when you look at Jesus, we see grace upon grace that we have received grace that can't even be called grace because it's so much greater than grace as it keeps on flowing upon us. Grace upon grace. And that he is greater than the law because the law was brought through Moses. But what does Jesus now, the word, bring to us? Grace and truth. So that we can follow him and know him. And then just to cap it all off, God, the Almighty, who no one has seen, no one can see, for we sinful humans who are created beings cannot gaze upon the glory of God without being disintegrated for how glorious and great he is. That he granted a boom to Moses and said, yeah, you can check me out, but you can only look at my backside. And even just getting a mooning by God, Moses' face was glowing with reflected glory of God. This God, who so further that we can possibly imagine, almighty and powerful, holy and pure, who made it all, who we can't see because of our sin, Jesus makes him known. 
and we see God through Jesus. We know God through Jesus. Not only that, we're made sons and daughters of God through Jesus. We're brought into God's family. And he looks upon us and he sees us through the lens of Christ and he says, you are beautiful. You are my treasured possession. I have been orchestrating and ordaining all of history to bring you into my family. You into my fold. And we know that all through Jesus. Because the Son came to make us sons. And we rejoice and we glory, and we praise the name of God because of that. Because the Son came to make us sons. So there's no question about it. Who Jesus is is an important question. Where we land in relationship to who Jesus is is the eternal question. The gospel is the good news that you no longer have to wander about in darkness and despair of sin, but you can enjoy the light of righteousness through Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that you no longer have to be dead, a rotting corpse with no future, but you can have life and that life everlasting in Christ. The gospel is the good news that you no longer have to be an orphan with no one to watch over you and on your own in this life, but you have a father that loves you, provides for you, and is bringing you home in Christ. That is the gospel. And that is the gospel of John. As he sums up almost right in these first 18 verses, this is who Jesus is. So what do we do with this? We look to Jesus. We see who Jesus is. If you're still wrestling with that question about where you stand with Christ, if you believe him to be the true Messiah, if you believe him to be the Savior, if you believe him to be the only way to God, look to Jesus and he'll tell you who he is. He'll make it clear to who who he is. Join with us as we journey through the Gospel of John because we'll make it very clear how the Gospel speaks of who Jesus is. So look to Jesus. If you have settled on that question and know who Jesus is and you have him in your life and you believe in him and you're following him, the same applies to you. Look to Jesus. Because it's not just like Jesus gets you in and then you turn back to the other things. No, you look to Jesus to be a son of God and a daughter of God. Then you look to Jesus to follow and live as a son of God. Then you look to Jesus on how you make decisions. Then you look to Jesus on how you love your wife or husband. Then you look to Jesus how you raise your kids. Then you look to Jesus how you go about in the business world. Then you look to Jesus on how you treat people. Then you look to Jesus on how you love people. Then you look to Jesus how you do church. Then you look to Jesus in all the facets of life. You look to Jesus. For he is the Son made flesh who dwelt among us to save us. The Son came to make us sons. Glory in that, praise him in that, and look to Jesus. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. Lord, we stand in awe that